she called me and let me know that she had found uh, her husband's name on Ashley Madison, which was a website, a website for married people to have affairs. And she wanted her marriage to end, having found that out. He was a leader in the church, separate story, and confessed to me having visiting strip clubs often, his wife not knowing any of this. Uh, she was a woman that confessed to me that she had not really spoken about this with anyone else, but that she had been raped in high school and it was affecting everything in her life, psychologically, emotionally, physically still. He confessed to me that he had molested his sister when they were young and that he was burdened with guilt, racked with it, couldn't, couldn't connect with God and others. He confessed to me that he got drunk and made out with someone that wasn't his wife. He confessed to me that a year or so before they were married, during their engagement, he had had sex with another woman and hadn't told his wife. I could go on and on and on, story after story, multiple, multiple people that have confessed pornography, addiction, all of this, all these stories I share, by the way, are not currently people in our church, people in previously in our church or when I was a pastor in Seattle. I could go on and on and on. But my point is to say that we live in a sexually broken world. We live in a sexually broken world where we experience sin done against us and where we sin against others. Some statistics I'll share with you. Unfortunately, our large screen isn't working, but uh, that's fine. But uh, if you, this was from 2018, but this said, Me Too brought down 201 powerful men. To just think about politicians and to think about movie producers and to think about all sorts of leaders and officials and celebrities that are in these places of power that are actually totally broken and sinning sexually. Uh, this is from a study from the General Social uh, Survey, which is a massive study they do uh, across all sorts of things, but from the the Institute for Family Studies quotes this, that 20% of men and 13% of women reported that they have had sex with someone other than their spouse while married. This is uh, not obviously narrowing for Christians or anything like that, but to think that on average, about 20% of men are going to cheat. And I won't get into all the data, but they only consider cheating if you actually have sex with someone. People said it wasn't cheating if you kissed or held hands or went on a date. So the rate goes even higher for that. One in five women in the United States experienced completed or attempted rape during their lifetime. I don't say any of that lightly. I'm sure some of you have experienced that. And it's tragic and awful. 25% nearly of men in the U.S. experienced some form of contact sexual violence in their lifetime. 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. 51% of male students and 32% of female students first viewed porn before their teenage years. 10, 11, 12. 
I read at one point, I don't know if this, I, I couldn't find the data on this, but that eight or so is the average age of exposure to pornography. So we live in a sexually broken world. We live in a sexually broken culture. Our lives have most of them experienced some form of sexual brokenness. And there's something better. God wants to speak into this area in our life. If we want wisdom, Proverbs is a book all about wisdom. If we want wisdom, there's no way to be wise. There's no way to walk in the wisdom that God has for our lives. There's, there's no way to have wisdom if we don't know how to navigate, navigate sex in the world that we live in. It's such a key issue. If you think about, if you think about it, it really is such a key issue for a variety of reasons. Some of us experience a lot of guilt around sexual things, whether that's current or past. Some of us experience a lot of shame for things done to us. Some of us experience just the hurt and suffering that has come with the sexual sin done against us, and we carry it. Some of us, it's one of the key areas where we disobey God. We may obey God in all sorts of other things, but for this area, we say, ah, I don't think so. It's one of the key areas where the culture and Christianity are most at odds. It's one of the key areas where we are tempted to compromise, where we're tempted to sin. It's one of the key areas in our lives where there may be lots of secrets even from those closest to us. So there's no way to walk in wisdom if we don't know how to navigate what God says about sexuality. There's no way to be wise. There's no way to say, God, I want your wisdom if we separate this area. It's something that affects all of us, whether it's because of things done to you in your past whether it's because of things currently present in your life or whether it's because you are called to raise your families and your children in a world that is sexually broken or maybe just to be a help and a Christian to those around you. There's no way to walk in God's wisdom without understanding what he says about sexuality. If we want to navigate this culture, if we want to have joy that God intends for us, freedom that God intends for us, closeness with him and in our relationships and to build strong families and to be a part of the mission that God has for us, we need his wisdom for sexuality. And there's a ton that could be said. The Bible speaks about sex often. There's all sorts of different things that we could cover, but we're in the book of Proverbs, so we are focusing on mainly what it says for us today on how to navigate sexual temptation and what it means to walk in wisdom. And to do that, we need to understand God's vision for sexuality first and then what the path of temptation is that deviates from that and the path of wisdom that we can walk in that. So let's begin with what is God's vision for sex or God's vision for sexuality. And I'll just read to you the first section of Proverbs 7. We're going to read the whole proverb today, but here's what it says. It says, my son, and even though it says my son, women, you can put your name there too, my daughter. Proverbs is really written as a, a training manual for children, particularly sons, but it 
is the word of God that is helpful for all of us. My son, obey my words and treasure my commands. Keep my commands and live and guard my instruction as you would the pupil of your eye. Tie them to your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call understanding your relative. She will keep you from a forbidden woman or a forbidden man. A wayward woman with her flattering talk. So when we're considering what God's vision is for sexuality, he says, obey my words, treasure my commands. But what, what wisdom? What commands? What words? What is he talking about that we should treasure, that we should obey? What is the thing? What is God's ethic for sexuality? Or what is God's vision for sexuality? I want to get into this proverb, but he is implicitly saying things in the obey my words and treasure my commands that they would know. But for us, there's a lot of confusion around what the sexual ethic of the Bible is, around what God's vision for sexuality is. If you actually look at recent statistics, and I know you can't see this in big, but roughly one-third of evangelical Protestants say that casual sex between consenting adults is always or sometimes acceptable. So only 33% say never, which means most of evangelical Protestant Christians do not know what the Bible's sexual ethic is. So when Proverbs says, obey my words, treasure my commands, if we're confused about what those commands even are, it's going to be very difficult to do that. So what does God say? What is the sexual ethic that the Bible presents? Here's the words of Jesus. For from the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, theft, false testimonies, slander. These are the things that defile a person. Sexual immoralities. He puts that next to adultery. Some people would say, yeah, adultery is sin, but uh, other things are okay. But sexual immoralities is probably the most common word the Bible uses to talk about God's sexual ethic of what is prohibited, which includes everything that is outside of a married man and woman. Here is what uh, the Dictionary of Biblical Languages with Semantic Domains, probably your favorite book, right? Book club discussing this. And the word that he uses there is porneia, which sounds familiar, right? That's where we get our word porn from. This is what it's defined as. Fornication, that's sex before marriage. Sexual immorality, sexual sin of a general kind that includes many different behaviors. It's anything. That word is the junk drawer word that is used for anything outside of a married man and a woman in a covenant that, of marriage. Hebrews says it like this. Marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. This is the pervasive ethic of the Bible on sexuality. I went to a farmer's market uh, several years ago and thought this really sums up the Bible's sexual ethic, which is this peach that says, don't touch me, don't squeeze me until I'm yours. Thank you. That essentially is what the Bible's sexual ethic is. I have to give you at least a joke because it's, you know, serious topic. That's the Bible's sexual ethic. In fact, it is such a pivotal issue 
It's such a pivotal issue. I, I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says, chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. By the way, this is written in the 40s. There is no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts. Maybe some of you are feeling that now. That obviously, either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct, as it now is, has gone wrong, one or the other. I think he's right. He forces the issue to say, listen, the way that the Christian sexual ethic is, is so bizarre, so crazy to what our modern culture in the 40s is. It's so bizarre that either something about us is off, or maybe all Christianity is wrong to begin with. Maybe that's what you're considering. Maybe that's what you're thinking about. This is, I think, true. And I think it forces us to consider the issue. If you're not a Christian, or if you're unsure what you believe, the Christian sexual ethic may be harder to believe for you than miracles. You might say, yeah, feeding the 5,000, eh, I guess that makes sense. Sometimes crazy things happen. Walking on water, yeah, David Blaine gets kind of close. There might be some things that you're like, yeah, I can believe that. A God, yeah, that makes sense. But the Christian sexual ethic may be the thing that is the most unbelievable for you and for our culture. But why? Why is it so hard to believe? If not the Christian sexual ethic, what sexual ethic? if not the Christian sexual ethic, if not the Bible's teaching, if not Jesus' words and teaching, then what ethic? What guide? What vision for sex? And the best right now that our culture has is what we call sexual positivity. This is uh, just a basic site that says, what does it actually mean to be sex positive? Maybe you've heard people say that term, but that is the basic sexual ethic of our culture today. And to be sex positive, above all else, sex positivity values consent, communication, education that allows people to make informed choices about their bodies and pleasure. That is essentially the competing sexual ethic. You've got the Bible's sexual ethic and vision and you've got sexual positivity, which is consent, and it is ultimately focused on pleasure. Now, there might be some things that are good on that. Obviously, consent is a great starting point of an ethic. But there really isn't much of a vision. It really isn't much of even an ethic to say that this is the vision for sexuality. If you think about it, it, and maybe this feels unfair, but it really boils it down to a commodity or something that is being an exchange of goods. You want pleasure, I want pleasure. As long as we both agree, we have a business deal. We have a transaction. Now, that can happen in hookup culture, which is, which is basically exactly what I described, or it can happen even in a committed relationship. But still, it is saying, I want pleasure, you want pleasure, we consent, there we go. 
but it lacks a depth. It lacks a beauty that is offered to us in the scripture. It's not really enough. It's not enough. In fact, uh, even people that are not Christians comment on this and begin to know this. This is the Washington Post, an opinion article that said consent is not enough. This is just from a few months ago. We need a new sexual ethic. There's something broken about just consent and pleasure. And this is a fascinating article I'd encourage you to read, but she says this, even when it goes well, sex is complicated. It involves our bodies, our minds, and emotions, our connections to each other, and our deepest selves, despite the many and popular arguments that it's only a physical act, it's clear to almost anyone who has had it that sex has vast consequences, some of which can last long after an encounter ends. Consent is not enough. We need a new sexual ethic. Even in the non-Christian world, there is some understanding in some pockets that that doesn't really do enough justice to just say, I agree, you agree. That's our vision for it. This is why no matter how liberated, no matter how unbiblical, no matter how consensual, we know it has so much power sex, and sexuality. Here's just a few samplings of how this power comes through, even in the places that we might consider the most sexually free and liberated. Kate Upton, who was a Sports Illustrated cover model, says, I I felt terrible about myself after my first Sports Illustrated cover. But aren't these women liberated? Aren't they sexually free and sexually positive? Kate Moss had a nervous breakdown over her Calvin Klein underwear shoot. Jennifer Lawrence got really, really, really drunk for her first sex scene. Says, I got really, really drunk. But then that led to more anxiety when I got home because I was like, what have I done? I don't know. And he was married and it was going to be my first time kissing a married man. And guilt is the worst feeling in your stomach. And I knew it was my job, but I couldn't tell my stomach that. So I called my mom and I was like, will you just tell me it's okay? It was just very vulnerable. And you don't know what's too much. You want to do it real. You want everything to be real. But then that was the most vulnerable I've ever been. You have, even in Hollywood, this liberated, sexually free place saying, I had to get drunk to do this. I felt awful. I had a nervous breakdown even in these visions of what we think is sexual freedom and sexual liberation, it is so powerful that we know this this isn't just a a thing. It's not just a consensual physical act that doesn't really matter. We know that. I've talked to many people that have been sexually abused, and no one just says, ah, it's just a physical act. And I know that's without consent, But there's other things that have happened to us in our lives that don't carry as much power as that because it isn't just a physical act. And so what is God's vision for sex? If we have sexual positivity, pleasure, consent on the one side, what is God's vision? Let me give you a few things that the Bible says. God blessed them. This is in Genesis when God creates man and woman. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And I heard someone say once that when God said be fruitful and multiply, he didn't mean, you know, eat cherries and do arithmetic. This is a command to have sex. 
Literally, the first command that God gives is to have sex. So Christianity may be called repressive or sexually unenlightened, but the very first command that God gives humans is be fruitful, multiply. He is saying, built into who I have designed you to be and who I have made you to be, you are a sexual being. Adam and Eve didn't wander together and then God was like, what are you doing? I didn't even think that that could happen. God commanded it, created it, designed it. Naked and unashamed is what the Bible says that Adam and Eve were before sin came into the world. It says later in Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This one fleshness is part of the Bible's sexual vision that it teaches to us. It communicates covenant. It communicates, I fully belong to you, all of me. I'm not giving you part of me, but holding another part back. I give you all that I am. I am yours exclusively. The man holds fast to his wife. They become one. I am yours exclusively. I am yours permanently. I am yours fully. I am yours passionately. I am yours affectionately. I am yours completely in every way, one. That is a much more beautiful and profound vision than consent, than pleasure even. The Bible's vision is that they come together and become one, a covenant that is made. And the physical act signifies a deep, spiritual meaning. And the Bible says later that it's not even just something about humans, but in Ephesians, Paul says, quoting that verse, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then listen to this. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What he is saying there earlier, comparing, saying that the church is Jesus's bride. He is saying that This one flesh union and covenant isn't just something that God has given to humans. It's something that actually points to God. It is designed to teach us something about God. It is designed to show us, it refers to Christ and the church, it's designed to show us we have a God who has given himself fully to us. We have a God that is completely faithful to us. We have a God that does not cheat on us, but says, you are mine. We have a God that passionately enjoys us and gives himself. We have a God that will be permanently ours and that we can be one with. That says, I will never leave you or forsake you. We have a God that fully gives himself to us. Doesn't just give us parts of himself, but says, come all the way in. That we can be one with him. So the Bible's vision of sexuality, you may disagree with it. You may not be sure what you think about it. You may have questions about it, but at least you would have to say, that's at least a more poetic, profound vision for what sex is than just consent, pleasure. The Bible's vision is at least more beautiful to say it is this exclusive, permanent, faithful, passionate thing 
that we communicate to one another and that reflects who God is, reflects the deepest spiritual meaning of the universe. That's the Bible's sexual vision. That's God's vision for sexuality. And so when he says, son, obey my words and treasure my commands, we have to start with just saying, what is it that we're supposed to obey? What is it we're supposed to treasure? This is the Bible's sexual ethic. Now, I think that's a beautiful vision, but there's many things that take us away from that. What is the path that will lead us away from this vision? What is the path that will lead us away from what God desires to give to us, to communicate to us, for us to have and navigate the power of sexuality? What will take you away? What is the path of sexual temptation? And, and when I say that, you can fill in the blank with whatever pornonea, various kinds that may be relevant to your life. It may be things that are in your mind. It may be things that happen in practice. It may be emotional, physical. It can be all sorts of things. Fantasies. What is the path of sexual temptation? Oftentimes, when we look at our life and we see the sin that we fall into sexually, we can say something or feel something like, I don't know how this happened. I don't know how I got here. I never thought that this would happen. I never thought that I was like this. I've never talked to somebody that had an affair or sent emails or did anything like that and said, this was my plan all along when I said I do. I've never talked to someone that said that. I've never talked to a Christian man that said, yeah, I always have wanted to be addicted to pornography. I've never had that conversation. We oftentimes don't know how we got where we got. And thus, if we don't know how we got there, we can also feel like, I don't know how to get out of here. And this is a really helpful snapshot that Proverbs gives to us. It's a documentary in some ways. Someone watching another person's life and saying, here's what happened that led them there. Here's what happened from lust to lost. Here's what took place. So he gives us this story that maybe we can find ourselves in. If not identical, then at least similar. So here's what he says. At the window of my house, I looked through my lattice. I saw among the inexperienced, I noticed among the youths, a young man lacking sense. This is where it begins. He says that he sees someone that is inexperienced or lacking sense. This is important. It starts with who we are. We can't just blame the culture. We can't just say boys will be boys or girls will be girls. We, we can't just blame our upbringing or whatever else. He says it's something inside him. He is inexperienced or he is lacking sense. That word inexperienced really means open, which is interesting. Because it means someone that is not committed, not resolved. If you think about your approach to sexuality, whatever that is, are you open? Or have you resolved, I will follow and treasure what God commands? Or are you open, not necessarily settled in your conviction or what you will or won't do? He says they were open, inexperienced, simple. And let me just say this to you parents especially. I noticed among the youths, a young man, I 
beg to you, parents, to early talk to your kids about these things. We've gone through a series of books with our kids that starts at age three, and it goes all the way up to 18. Starts at age three with lots of pictures, and then the pictures get less and less as it goes on. The pictures begin with, here's pregnancy, and here's you in the womb, and then as the topics change, there's less pictures for obvious reasons. But I beg you, parents, I beg you to talk to your kids. Next, we see this. Crossing the street near her corner, he strolled down the road to her house at twilight, in the evening, in the dark of night. Crossing the street near her corner. I love that it starts like that because this is honest. It doesn't say, I saw the inexperienced, he jumped into bed with her. It says, what's he doing? He's just out for a stroll. If you were to see him, if you were to talk to him, he might say, there's nothing wrong with crossing the street. There's nothing wrong with going to a corner. Did God say you can't go to corners? Did God say you can't cross the street? He might say, yeah, I know what happens on this corner, but I'm strong enough to handle this. It starts with small things. It starts with, what do you think is going to happen when you pull out your phone late at night? What do you think is going to happen when you go downstairs to a private computer? What do you think is going to happen when you decide to surf the channels in a hotel room on a trip? What do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen when you decide, ah, I'm just going to look up that old girl on Facebook? What do you think is going to happen? I'm just crossing a corner. There's nothing wrong with sending an email. There's nothing wrong with having a conversation. There's nothing wrong with having a glass of wine with this person. There's nothing wrong with, I'm just crossing a corner. That is so often where it starts. I'm just crossing a corner. Is it sinful to cross a corner? Maybe not, but it's stupid. It's inexperienced. It's simple. It shows someone that's unresolved, that's open in their mind to the possibility of what might accidentally happen. If you cross the corner, you're already lost. The battle's already been won at that point. <clears throat> a woman came to him dressed like a prostitute, having a hidden agenda. Something might look great on the outside, but there is a hidden agenda. Think about how much work is done to give visual appeal to the outside of a movie of a sex scene, the right angles, the right lights, while she's puking and calling her mom filled with guilt. Something might, might look beautiful, photoshopped, and the right everything, and it looks alluring, but there's a hidden agenda. There's a hidden agenda. We know Harvey Weinstein had a hidden agenda. We know Bill Cosby had a hidden agenda. We know, I mean, list goes on and on and on, right? We know there's hidden agendas in these things that are presented as, hey, this is great, this is beautiful, this looks good, you look good. There's hidden agendas. Do you know that the culture has a hidden agenda for you? That the porn industry has a hidden agenda for you? 
that Satan, who the Bible tells us prowls around like a roaring lion, has a hidden agenda for you. Something looks beautiful, but it's a poison apple. Then, it says, she is loud and defiant. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, she lurks at every corner. That feels a lot like our culture. You can't pull up social media. You can't hardly watch a TV show. You can't hardly look at Netflix or whatever other streaming service and even see the upcoming things or recommended for you or what's hot right now without seeing even on the icons and the images. Look at this. It's hard to go anywhere. It lurks at every corner. Pull up Spotify and look at just sometimes the front page of, look at this new album, album cover. It's not a wholesome Amish woman. You know, it's, there's all sorts of things. It lurks at every corner, all over the place. That makes it difficult. That makes it hard. It makes it challenging and all the more need, therefore, for wisdom. You can't, uh, let me even say, you can't even, well, I'll just keep going. Time here. Then it says, she grabs him and kisses him. She brazenly says to him, I've made fellowship offerings today. I've fulfilled my vows. There's this moment of passion where now she just goes for it, grabs him, says, you're mine, kisses him. And then God's okay with it. Or at least God will forgive me. I've already gone to the temple. I've already made my sacrifices. I've already fulfilled my vows she is putting a spiritual justification around this situation. This so often happens. God will forgive me. God knows I need to be happy. God knows how much I've prayed for a man. God knows how much I've prayed for a wife. God knows our hearts. God knows we're married in our hearts. God knows whatever else, fill in the blank. But often there's a spiritual justification that is given or that someone else gives to you. Then she says, so I came out to meet you, to search for you, and I found you. You're special. I've searched for you. I've, you are special to me. Oftentimes, this is a lie that we believe or that is used. You are special, desirable. I want you. That's what is communicated. That can be just from an ad or it can be from a person. I knew I knew a guy in high school that would tell girls, and it worked. I've had sex with many people, but I want to make love with you. Oh. Or another guy that would say, I want to spend the rest of my life with you tonight. Oh. It worked. I came out to meet you, to search for you. I found you. You're special. And then... I've spread coverings on my bed, richly colored linen from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of lovemaking until morning. Let's feast on each other's love. Presents this amazing feast. Now, I don't know if this pickup line would work today to say, I've got Egyptian sheets. I've got cinnamon on my bed. Like, I don't know if that works today, maybe. But it worked back then. 
to say, I got the best silky bed you've ever seen. It's going to smell good. We're going to feast. We're going to, this is the original R&B line, right? We're going to make love all night long. Saying, come on. Oftentimes, it is the appeal of pleasure that is given to us. It'll be awesome. It'll satisfy whatever hurt you have, whatever loneliness you have, whatever boredom you have, whatever sadness you have, whatever anger you have, whatever revenge you need to make, whatever, whatever hole, it will satisfy. It will be a feast. It will fill you up. And then she says, my husband isn't home. He went on a long journey. He took a bag of silver with him and will come home at the time of the full moon. This is, no one's going to find out. Oftentimes, it's under the cover of secrecy. And these are the things. This is the path. This is what we believe. This is what we tell ourselves. Again, that started with what? Crossing the corner. There's nothing wrong with crossing the corner, but now I'm being told, you're about to enter into an affair and it's okay my husband isn't home. Remember, God will forgive us. Remember, it's going to be awesome. Remember, you are special. The hiddenness is often where sexual temptation draws us in. And maybe, but I can tell you nine times out of ten, you will be found out. You'll be found out because you'll be caught. You'll be found out because the weight of guilt will lead you to confess. You'll be found out because... God will make it happen providentially. You'll be found out because in the end, God's judgment. And then it says, she seduces him with her persistent pleading. She lures with flattering talk. Oftentimes, it's not even the visual appeal, but the words. Think about ads that come. Think about spam emails that come. Think about things that people say to each other. Oftentimes, it is the words that grab us to be told. We read things. We listen to things. Often, it starts with a headline. You don't want to miss what this person looked like in their bikini. You don't want to miss what whatever. It's the headlines. It's the text. It's the song. Sometimes it's not even the words of a person, but it's the messages in our culture. This is from uh, one of the commentaries on Proverbs that I read. It says, the smooth words may be messages you are being bombarded with in the culture. Don't get married too young. Delay marriage as long as you can so you know you're ready. It's okay to mess around. How else will you know what you like sexually? Guys like girls who are more sexually active. If you don't act somewhat aggressive, he won't want you. Infidelity is hotter than monogamy. Follow your heart. Do what makes you happy. My spouse isn't as romantic with me as she should be, so I wish my husband was more sensitive to my needs like the man in this book or this movie or wish he had more shades of gray or whatever. And then it says, he follows her impulsively like an ox going to the slaughter. Like a, beer, like a deer bounding toward a trap until an arrow pierces its liver. Like a bird darting into a snare. He doesn't know. It will cost him his life. That's where it ends. The, path, the end of the path is death. And then it says, Now sons, listen to me and pay attention 
to the words from my mouth. Don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray onto her paths, for she has brought many down to death. Her victims are countless. Her house is the road to Sheol, which is the grave or death or hell, descending to the chambers of death. That's the end. It started with, I crossed a corner, and it ends with death. And oftentimes we can think there's no consequences. Oftentimes we can think it's not hurting anybody. Why does it matter? If it's done in the privacy of my own home, on my own phone, who cares? Oftentimes we can think it's innocent, it's not a big deal. What's a kiss? What's an email? What's a little flirting? Oftentimes we think we can manage it. The proverb says it always leads to the chambers of death. What started with a simple crossing of a corner leads to this graphic image. That's where it ends up. That's always the place it ends up, is death. Which death is consequences in our life, affecting our marriage, affecting our joy, affecting our purpose, affecting how we even view God, affecting so many things. And there's eternal consequences. It leads to death. Is this path familiar to you? Have you seen it happen in your life, in other people's lives? Do you observe it? Do you notice it taking place? Proverbs starts with saying, this is not what God wants. Back to the beginning, it says, keep my commands and live contrasted with the end of this leads to death. Keep my commands and live, which doesn't just mean, you know, when the Bible talks about living and life, most of the time it doesn't just mean you will physically be okay. It means a quality of life. It's what Jesus talks about. It's what our church means when it says there is life and life abundant available to you. God's intention in all of his commands around sexuality, around everything, but God's intention around this whole thing. I want life for you. I want joy for you. I want closeness with you. I want you to know me. I want you to be able to have deep relationship with others. I want you to have a sense of guilt-free and peace. I want you to have passion on the mission that I've given to you. Keep my commands and live. But to deviate from these things always leads us to death. Listen, let me, let me tell you what I mean. Some of you enjoy your marriage, but it's not anything of what it could be because of sexual sin. Some of you have some sense of closeness to God, but it's not what it could be because you feel and live with guilt and shame knowing what you're doing. Some of you are serving and active and care about God's work in the world and his work in the church in our city, but it's hard for you to fully engage in his mission because you know, man, I'm living with this thing. Keep my commands and live. There's a flourishing that God wants for you, a life that God wants for you that's better. And so what is, oh no, we've lost both of them. Satan doesn't want the next slides. <laughs> he wants to just leave you with what not to do, but not what to do. Uh, all right, I'll hope, hopefully you guys will get it up. 
or the Lord will heal this TV. <clears throat> what is the path of sexual wisdom? What is the path of sexual wisdom? Whether this is to prevent you, maybe you're fine right now and this prevents you. This is the path of wisdom. Maybe you need to get out of the path of temptation. This is the path of wisdom. Maybe it is to help other people around you. Maybe it's for your kids or grandkids. What is the path of sexual wisdom? Here's what he says. He starts with, at the beginning of verse 7, the very beginning he says, my son. Now that, we could kind of glaze over that and miss it, but that puts the whole thing in this familial, affectionate, fatherly context that he says, my son, which is to say, remember who you are. You're not a piece of meat. You're not just a body. You're not just a product. You're not just a clicker to be sold by a stupid ad. You are my son. You are someone that Jesus died for. You belong to me. We have to begin with who you are. If you are a Christian, you are bought by Jesus. You belong to him. You're united to him. He is your father. We are his children. That's where it starts. You are a son of God or a daughter of God. You belong to him. Then, over and over in the beginning, I'm going to kind of, since it's, oh, there we go. Oh, we got to redo the path of sexual temptation. <clears throat> My son, okay? Then he says this later. I'm going to kind of go in the front section and the bottom section because both of them give the commands of what to do. He says, listen to me. Pay attention to the words from my mouth. That really is the second thing. We have to listen to God. Do you know how much we listen to all the other messages and all the other things and all the other, I mean, media and so, I mean, it's inundating. And he says, listen to me. Pay attention to the words from my mouth. This might mean for you that you need to learn. You need to Read good books that help your heart understand these issues. And then he says to treasure my commands. It's not just that we listen and obey grudgingly, but to actually see the good, to see the beauty, to see the vision and treasure God's commands. You won't walk in the path of sexual wisdom if you think it's stupid, but you'll do it. He says treasure See my vision, see my goodness, see who I am, trust me. To treasure his commands means that we fill our minds and our hearts with who he is and what he says. Part of what God says, by the way, for those of you that are married, and I didn't have time to give Proverbs 5, but if you want to read Proverbs 5 over a glass of wine with your wife tonight, part of God's wisdom in treasuring his commands is enjoy the sexual relationship he's given you with your wife. Remember, God is the one that commands and creates this beautiful covenant. And when it says, as we do this, she will keep you from a forbidden woman. This is to say, sometimes, I, listen, I think it's easy for any of us to just have a defeatist mindset. That's just kind of the world we live in. This is just kind of how it is. I'm just going to always struggle with this. Uh, one day it'll be all right. 
But he says, as we treasure God's commands and listen to him, we will be protected. He will keep us. That means God is with you. That means you can experience being protected. And then he says, at the very end of the, sh- the chambers of death, my sons, listen to me, pay attention to the words from my mouth. Don't stray onto her paths, right? That's where it starts. Back to what I said before. It starts there. Not where's the line, not how close can I get, not is it a sin to cross the corner. It starts with get away from her paths. Don't even go there. Don't get close. We should be thinking the path of wisdom is I need to get off of the path. Listen, what is your path? If you struggle with sexual temptation and sexual sin, what's the path that leads you there? It might be helpful for you to write out your own Proverbs 7 and say, what does it start with? And say, okay, if that's the first step, don't even go on the path. And then he says, guard my instruction as you would the pupil of your eye, saying this is very important, like the center of your eye, very sensitive, right? The center, the pupil of your eye. He says, guard it like you would that, which is similar to what Jesus says when he says, if your right hand would cause you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye would cause you to sin, cut it off. It is saying you need to take very serious measures to protect yourself. What does this look like for you? Don't just say, I keep sinning, I keep struggling. So get rid of internet. Get rid of your phone. Write people letters from now on. I'm sending you a text. It will take a while. Yes, I can make it. (laughs) Uh, It was last week. But are you willing to take extreme measures? That is what guarding the pupil of your eye means. That's what cutting off your hand or cutting off your eye means. It means what are you willing to do to say, I'm going to walk in wisdom. I don't want to die. I want to live. And he says, don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. This tells us that before we ever cross the corner or before we ever end up somewhere we didn't want to end up, starts in our heart. What is it that's leading me in the first place to this? What is it that I'm missing? What is it I'm searching for? There's an old quote that says, every man that knocks at the door of a brothel is searching for God. Which is to mean there's something in our heart, some loneliness, some sadness, some anger, some connection, some excitement, some comfort that starts in our heart. Don't let your heart turn aside to her ways, which means bring your heart to God. It means those heart struggles, those heart pains, those heart longings, those heart searchings. Don't knock at the door of the brothel. Don't knock at the door of social media. Don't knock at the door of pornography. Don't knock at the door of the good-looking co-worker. Bring your heart to God. Then he says this line, which says, Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call understanding your relative. You know, that's kind of weird phrasing, but it's to say what, instead of this intimate relationship over here, 
we should have an intimate relationship with wisdom, which Proverbs defines as the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God, which is to say an intimate relationship, therefore, with knowing God. It's to say what replaces this this path that leads to this false connection is a real and a deep connection with God. That as you experience his meeting of your needs, as you experience his affection, his comfort, as you experience a closeness with him, that makes it so we don't have to sell out our sexuality to a pseudo-closeness. And the final thing is, he says, it starts with him saying, my son, but then he says, sons, my sons, now sons. And I think in this, we can see he's not just talking to an individual, but to a community. And oftentimes, you won't be able to walk in the path of sexual wisdom that God has for you, whether that's pornography, adultery, flirtation, emails, fantasy life, whatever it is, by yourself. It takes a community of people because we live in a culture and we live in a community that's so different. It takes a community of people where we can actually live together helping each other walk in this path of wisdom. That means give help and get help from those around you part of why for us community is such a big deal and community groups and LTGs. If we want wisdom, if we want wisdom, there's no way to have wisdom. There's no way to walk in God's wisdom. We cannot say we are walking in the wisdom of God if we don't have sexual wisdom. It affects so much of our life. It's a key area that we need. We have to see God's vision. We have to see the path of temptation, the path of wisdom. Sex is a powerful, beautiful thing that God designed. And he wants us to be a community that understands that and lives in wisdom and reflects that wisdom to one another, to our families, and to the world around us. We're going to take communion. And when we take communion, we are remembering so many beautiful truths connected to this topic. If you didn't grab a little cup on the way in, there by the door, you can grab one. But we remember Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us. We remember the only truly righteous son who walked in total sexual wisdom. We remember the son of God who walked in total wisdom and yet went to the chambers of death for our sexual sin. Listen, some of you, many of us, have sinned or are sinning sexually. Some of it people know, some of it is hidden. When you take communion, you're remembering Jesus' blood forgives me. Jesus' blood cleanses me. Jesus' blood washes me. He went to the chambers of death for me. He didn't deserve it, but he went to the chambers of death for me in my place. You're remembering that this righteous son, the only truly righteous son, also gives to you 
his record of righteousness and says, God now sees you defined by the righteous son. But don't take that lightly. We're never to take communion and say, God forgives me, it's okay, I've made my vows as some justification. We are to walk in repentance. And so, receive the forgiveness of Jesus. Some of you have experienced sexual brokenness and sin that's been done against you. God sees that. God meets you there in the middle of a sexually broken world. He cares for you. He's near you. And so as you take communion, I want you to take a minute and thank Jesus for his forgiveness. Thank him for his cleansing. Thank you for his gift of righteousness and confess your sin to him. And make a commitment to confess to those that you need to confess to. Spouses, community groups, LTGs. And make a commitment to follow his path of wisdom. That's what repentance is, to turn our hearts towards him and to turn our lives towards him. Let me pray for us and then take a moment and pray where you are. I'll be in the back if anyone would like prayer for this or for anything. Don't think that anyone that comes back to me is cheating on their wife. So I'll be in the back for prayer. If you want prayer for this or for whatever's going on in your life, for healing, for help, Father, I thank you that you give us your vision that is so much more beautiful than just consent, that you give a, a beautiful vision of what you have designed and created that communicates to us something of who you are as the faithful God, as the God that is fully giving himself to us. We thank you that though we are sexual sinners, sexually broken, you have forgiveness, you have grace, and you have better so, Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts even now and that you would let today transform people's lives. Holy Spirit, don't let anyone escape the voice that you are speaking to them right now. Amp up the volume of your voice, I ask right now, God, and silence the voice of the enemy. In your name, Jesus, amen.